0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. It's good to see everybody here today. Those of you who are I really, uh, I really love the holidays. Who loves the holidays? People give you stuff. You give people stuff. I didn't get everything I wanted. There were some socks and underwear. It's funny, when you're a kid, that's a curse. When you're an adult, that's a blessing. <laughs> Moving right along. 2018 is about to conclude and we're looking right at 2019 and it's going to be a great year. Let me speak prophetically. It's going to be a year of breakthrough. Some of you are going to have breakthroughs you won't even believe you have even after you have them. It's going to be a year of comfort. One of the things the Lord spoke to me recently was to live in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Who likes that idea? That her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now that sounds bad. Double for all her sins, until you study that and realize what the Lord's saying is double blessing for all her sin. This Isaiah 40 passage is the beginning of Isaiah's new covenant concept. If you look at the book of Isaiah, and I'm not really here to talk about this, I have something else But if you look at the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters can represent 39 books of the Old Testament. And the last 26 represent the 26 books of the New Testament. And Isaiah 40 begins with the ministry of John the Baptist being prophesied. And so my wife and I were talking. I got anointed right there. Did you hear that thing? It's picked right up. Donna and I were talking about this passage for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And it sounds like it means the Lord punished them double for what they had done wrong. But the more I study it, John Calvin, I can't remember. I I found four commentators who believe that that is not accurate. It's a picture, the introductory picture of extreme mercy and grace from God. And so I've been living in that, in that book. But uh, that's just a little, just a little pre-message snack. Ooh, uh, is there water? Oh, there's water. Could someone bring me that water? Um, Sunday I spoke just a few minutes out of Matthew one, and it's all connected to the season and Christmas. Um, and I wanted to repeat some of that to set up another portion of Scripture that I think is very important. And I believe the Lord's going to be speaking to our hearts today. He really wants to help people. How many of you want to believe that with me? Let, let's, let's agree God wants to help people. Well, what about the rest of you? Come on, my goodness. <laughs> you must need the help. So <laughs> let's say that again. God wants to help people. In here today to heal their hearts. And I believe that's what 2019 is going to be a year of people's hearts being restored and healed. Um, and so I have an overhead out of Matthew 1 18 through 23. But um, what we'll do is let's skip down, let's skip to the third one, verse 23. And let's read that together, verse 23. Listen, a virgin will be pregnant, she will give birth to a son, and he will be known as Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God became one of us. If you have an inaccurate understanding or viewpoint of who God is, your life will reflect it. And there's a lot There's a lot of confusion about what God's like. And I think to to be very simple, the closest picture we have of God the Father, we locate in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. And so the the whole um, birth of Jesus is all about God becoming someone, a person. I say someone like us, of course, we know with yet without sin, that's the whole aspect of redemption that has to be true. But he became one of us, and I went through this uh, a little bit Sunday, but I, I just wanted to do it again because there's some things we shouldn't skate over because it's a holiday. Some of these things are so profound, if we can understand them, if they can penetrate us, our lives will change. We'll treat ourselves better. You don't treat people any better than you really treat yourself in some ways. And so I want you to love yourself so that you can. Well, you're already loving your neighbor as yourself. So if you're mean to people, that sort of indicates a little. The psychologist continues. That gives you some indication that you don't understand enough of how God thinks about you. That's where everything changes. That's where everything changes. Is when a relationship with Jesus touches you to the degree that you know God really loves you. I've said it warts and all, meaning knowing your history, knowing your past, but knowing your future too, which is quite frightening. But he knows your past, he knows your present, he knows your future, and he's devoted to you. That's one thing Emmanuel tells us. God is committed. He's committed to us to the degree that he became one of us. He knows by experience what it is to be human, what it means to hurt, what it feels like to suffer. People go through horrible things, then they feel unloved by God, when in essence, God in the person of Jesus is, suffered extreme agony, an agony we cannot even understand because it was an eternal spiritual kind of agony on the cross where he became sin for us, the Bible tells us. And if you become something, you experience it and you know it personally. And so there's never a situation, male, female, child, adult, where you can where you should conclude god does not understand how you feel or what you feel because he's felt all of that plus is that good all of that plus he knows what it feels like to be betrayed he knows what it feels like to lose loved ones his father joseph john the baptist close friend cousin he knows what it feels like to die What it feels like to sin as he became sin for us on the cross. So, Emmanuel means God is truly sympathetic to our condition and wants us to know it. And I could continue, I could continue in this vein, but I need to, I need to shift gears. I want to give us a very clear picture of the heart of God from the Gospel of John. And so if uh, you can turn, tune in, dial up, however you do it. John chapter 8, I'm going to read 11 verses. And this, this is the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, which would be a very humiliating, exasperating thing to happen, but it was even worse than that. Listen to what they did to this poor woman. Verse 1, Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives near the city where he spent the night. Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again, and soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words, so he sat down and taught them. Then in the middle of his teaching... The religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Now, now to sort of bring this home, think about the worst thing you've ever done. Think about being brought before people who would... um, Dump on you the worst of any kind of feelings you could have about it. Realize their authorities, religious authorities. And that's a little bit of the picture you have of this dear woman. Caught in the act of committing adultery. My one question, I'll cover this later. Where was the man? Isn't that a great question? All the feminists are really shut up. Uh. We're going to discover something though. In this case, it'd be better to be the woman than the man. And and we'll see why in a minute, and it should it should help you so. I believe the Lord's speaking to us already. Then they said to Jesus, Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death A woman like this, tell us what do you say we should do with her? They were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the laws of Moses. And so they had absolutely no concern whatsoever for this woman. They were using her, embarrassing her, humiliating her, wounding her, even though she had done something she shouldn't have done in an effort to accuse and condemn Jesus uh, as based on what he would conclude about what the law of Moses said. And here's the scary part. The law of Moses really did say to stone to death a woman who who committed adultery. It also said stone to death any of your children that left the Jewish faith. I mean, there were some rocks flying in uh, good old Jerusalem when things were going south. If you can't see the difference in the Old and New te- if People that want to go back to the Old Testament and the, and, and the law are cr- crazy. <laughs> All these people go do the eating stuff. How about the stoning stuff? Let me say that again. They want to go do the eating stuff. How about the stoning stuff? And, and then you're, you're not spiritual if you don't. I had bacon this morning for breakfast. Awesome. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to be offensive. The Bible's trying to be offensive. I'm just signing up. But they were testing Jesus to accuse him of breaking the laws of Moses. But Jesus didn't answer them. Actually, the New King, I'm reading from the Passion Translation. The New King James Version actually says, Jesus acted as though he did not hear them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, say angry. Angry, Angry, that's an aspect of having a religious intolerant spirit. Angry, they kept insisting that he answer this question. So Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, let's... Have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. And then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accusers slowly left the crowd, one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, with a convicted conscience. That's amazing. Their consciences really were convicted. "...until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her... Now here's the thing I began to see as I've studied through this. Jesus didn't ask her the same question twice. He asked her two different questions. And you need to understand that to really hear what God was saying to this to this woman." So he stood back up and he said to her, Dear woman, think of the way he addressed her with compassion. Dear woman, where are your accusers? Second question, is there no one here to condemn you? See, the Bible says that Jesus was left alone with the woman. One translation said, Jesus saw no one but the woman. Looking around, the woman replied, I see no one, Lord. It's tremendous. Now, the word Lord there doesn't mean sir. It's not a term of respect for some kind of an authority in in the Aramaic. That word Lord means Lord Yahweh, which means she was recognizing that Jesus was not just the teacher. These Pharisees saw him as She saw him as God. She began to see the difference in how religion treats you and how God treats you. You see, that's what's going on there. The religious people were angry. The religious people broke into. It They were rude. Religious people are rude. They broke into Jesus' teaching. They kept demanding him to answer their questions. But Jesus had the sense, the sensitivity to not listen to them. He wasn't listening here to try to figure out how clever he could be. He refused to be compelled to answer or to act until he heard from here. That's what religious people try to do. They try to make you act before you've heard what it is you need. So, Jesus looking around, or rather looking around, this woman replied, I see no one, Lord. I see no one, Lord God. Jesus said, then I certainly don't condemn you either. Go, and from now on, be free from a life of sin. And that's remarkable. That's remarkable. One encounter with God, I don't know, with unadulterated, uncontaminated God, released in this woman the capacity to see herself as God saw her and gave her the energy or the power to no longer live the life she had lived. Anyways, just, just we'll cover that here in a minute. But I, I did want to do, do this. As Don and I were kicking this back and forth over the holidays, she remembered that Bill Johnson in his book, God is Good, had some very uh, succinct comments about this, and I wanted us to hear what, what he had to say, because I, th- I think it's so good. Bill Johnson says, when they brought the woman caught in adultery to Jesus to see what he would do, He once again represented the Father. You see, the Gospels, actually Jesus told the disciples, I'm leaving, but I won't leave you as orphans. And there's this concept, and I think it's a true concept, that people behave the way they behave based on feeling like they're orphaned, like they're disconnected from the kind of father they needed to develop as the kind of child that they are. And the interesting thing is you can have a good father and still live your life as though you're an orphan, scrambling, scratching, wounded, hurt, reacting instead of living. And so one of the things God wants to do is impress upon people deeply and profoundly that, that you are one of his children and not just one of his children, one of his children that he loves Deeply, profoundly, maybe even desperately. I remember early one morning as I was waking up, I felt the Lord whispered to me, said, "Um, each one of my children is my own personal favorite. Say that with me. I want that to register. Here's what God thinks. Each one of my children is my own personal favorite. So who's God's favorite person in the world? <laughs> Me. And I thought, man, that's profound. Then he was he wasn't through. Then he said, but very few of them know it. You can't afford to not know that. You you should pursue God until that's a profound part of who you are. And I I'm I'm confident in saying it's not automatic when you get saved. There's, there's a lot of things in you or in there um, that have to be somehow sorted out and dealt with and properly positioned because our relationship with God is just that. It's a relationship. It's not just an automatic. Now, if any man be in Christ, the Bible says he's a new creature All things are old. Behold, all things are made new. That's reality. But it's got to be experienced. You've got to walk in that place to where your mind has absolutely been renewed. You no longer think like who you were. You begin now that you know the Lord. You begin to think like who you are. Paul would talk in the book of Romans about the importance of renewing your mind. So, Bill says, God, Jesus represented the Father, and the religious leaders brought stones to kill her according to the law they lived under, but Jesus came with a different assignment. He bent over, wrote in the dirt, telling those intending to stone her to go ahead under this condition. The one without sin cast the first stone. Interestingly, the only one without sin refused to cast a stone at all. Instead, he revealed the father. In reality, this was a father-daughter moment. All those intending to stone her to death fled the scene. Whatever he wrote, wrote in the dirt, whatever he wrote released such an atmosphere of grace that those driven by judgment had to leave. Jesus then did what any one of us would have done if our daughter were lost in such moral failure and humiliating shame. He served her. Jesus didn't care what the religious leaders thought of him. The opinions of the crowd don't matter either. The father had to be seen and demonstrated. And more importantly, the father had to be known by this one who was lost, this one who was manifesting her orphaned heart. Why was she having sex like that? You see, we can look at immorality and condemn immorality, but that's a, that's a consequence. It's not a cause. Why do you do that? Why do you do the things you shouldn't do? That needs to be answered, not just change your behavior. You change your behavior, you're going to go do something else harmful. It's just going to be something else because these things come from something profound and something deep, That only God himself and the person of Christ Jesus can answer. And he will answer them. Never think he won't. Never think he won't take you up where you meet him. Never think he won't help you. Who says he won't help you? Do you think God says that I won't help you? No. No. Where does that come from? It comes from the devil. Let's talk about the devil. The devil is mean. The devil hates you. The devil's not imaginary. He is a real living being. And if you don't understand that dimension, you fight people all the time. People do stupid, crazy, horrible, mean, ugly, confusing things. But the Bible says if you can understand this, that we don't fight them What we wrestle is principalities and powers, those things which fuel their actions, which keeps us from being angry with them. That's really good, Robin. Bill Johnson says, In the old covenant she would have been stoned to death, but this is a different season. Even though the old covenant was still in play as the blood of Jesus had not been shed yet, Her sin wasn't ignored and treated lightly. Once she acknowledged that her accusers had left and there was no one now to condemn her, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But that's not all he said. He said, go and sin no more. He disciplined her with loving words. Every action, every word pointed to a perfect father, one who's completely good. That's who our God is. He's a perfect father. So that's what Bill Johnson had to say, and I I thought that was really, really good. I wanted to go back through these different verses. I have, um, I've got about 15 or 20 minutes. Because I think the Lord really wants to reinforce these things. You know, in verse 3 of, of John 8, we see that, The Pharisees break through the crowd. Here's this poor woman being caught in the act of committing adultery. And they made her stand in the middle of everyone. What would her basic feeling be? What would it be? Shame. Let me ask it this way. What would it be? That's the same way, but I'm just repeating it shame that's that's one of the foundational emotions god wants to deliver us from is shame how horrible would that have been for her i mean she did the wrong thing everybody does the wrong thing sometimes the Bible says, for all have sinned. If God didn't forgive, a friend of mine told me heaven would be empty. That's not actually true. It would be empty of humans. I'm sure it's full of God only knows what else. Have you ever seen those beings in the book of Ezekiel that look like heads and spaceships and lights? and? You, you, really? I don't believe in UFOs. But I believe heaven's full of stuff that probably scared the Dickens out of us. Was <laughs> God so cre- I mean, th- think about giraffes. Think about some of the weird animals. Do you know what the word giraffe" means? In Arabic? Look it up. <laughs> it means creature of grace. That's what it means. If the Lord ever shows you a giraffe, he's imparting something to you. there. come on. Be holy. So here's this woman now humiliated. So in, in verse 4, they say, Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. And I've I said this earlier. Where was the man? Isn't that, isn't that ridiculous that they would do that? They would bring her, leave him. Oh, he could have been one of them. You don't know. Men are tricky. Anybody realize men are tricky? Now, in verse 5, they demanded for the law to be obeyed. You know, one of the things you need to recognize about the old covenant is the old covenant was written in tables of stone. But the new covenant is when it's been written in the tables of your heart. And, and it's it's not you look at that and apply it to them. You apply it to yourself, because it should be in you. That's what it is, to, uh, Jeremiah thirty three, and we we find it again over in Hebrews. What it is to have have the new covenant. It's the law of God's written in your heart. You know what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. Now you may have issues. You may not be empowered to do it yet. There there it is a relational. Um, situation, you, you, you learn how to receive more grace. Even Jesus, the Bible says Jesus grew in favor. Jesus grew in favor with God and man. Even Jesus grew in favor. Favor is manifest grace. It's a very interesting idea, but it's a mystery. And so um, they demanded that the law be enforced to kill this woman. They were willing to kill this woman in order to trap Jesus and condemn him. Verse 6 says they were only testing Jesus. They hoped to trap him with his own words, but Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down, we find in verse 6, and wrote in the dust with his finger. So as Jesus was being confronted He, being the prince of peace, kept his peace, and he acted like he didn't even hear him. He was listening somewhere else. Here's a question all of us need to answer because if we don't answer it accurately, we're going to do the wrong thing. Who do you listen to? Do you listen to your friends? Now, when I say you listen to the Lord, you can hear the Lord through your friends, but your primary responsibility as having been purchased with the price is to live for God, stand before God, not before your friends, not before your associates, not before your parents, honor your parents, all that, but your primary calling in life is to hear from God and do the things he wants you to do with your life. Who do you listen to? If we would learn to listen to the Lord, we would do the right things, and we would avoid all kinds of problems and difficulties through making bad choices because people thought we should make these choices or decisions. But Jesus refused to yield. Until he heard from heaven, he acted like he did not even hear their questions. You have to be pretty peaceful to live that way, but that's our calling. Do you let people force you to make decisions before you hear from God? I was going to buy this Cadillac one time. That's redneck prosperity right there. (laughs) I was a traveling salesman. And you had to have a really big car. And I found this Cadillac at a really good price. But it's from a salvage company. And I never got heaven's go-ahead. But I made my decisions when I, I bought it later. I don't know if you know that the trunk's big old. I mean, you could swim in that. You could fill that trunk up with water and swim in it. This was a pretty good one. It has a lining in it. Well, the lining wasn't glued right. It was all coming down. Then the paint started cracking. And I realized I had not been listening to the right people when I bought that car. But the interesting thing was I had to pay for it. Be careful who you listen to. Don't want something more than God wants it for you. Oh, gosh. How do you do that? Well, you buy a crummy thing you have to pay for for three years, three and a half years that you wish you'd never owned. In other words, some stuff, the only way we're going to learn. Listen, experience is not the best teacher Somebody else's experience is the best teacher. But some things we won't learn until... I'm sorry, I just think that's probably right. Now, writing in the dust. They were angry. I wonder what Jesus wrote in the dust. Maybe he didn't write anything. But Jesus... Facing their anger, their insistence on an answer, a decision, he stood up and looked at them and he said, let's have the man who's never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. Then he bent back over, got back down on the ground and wrote in the dust. No one knows what he wrote. Maybe he wrote nothing. Or he could have written this verse, Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me, which is spiritual adultery shall be written in the earth. What happens if the only record of your life is in dust and the wind blows or it rains? That's what happens when you don't ultimately maintain the spiritual integrity of a walk with God. But when Jesus wrote that, he could have, if he wrote it, He could have been telling those accusers, you are in mortal jeopardy yourself much more than this dear woman. Oh, wow. That's not the first time the finger of God ever wrote something. How many of you remember in the book of Daniel, I think it's chapter 5, Belteshazzar, or have you say his name, they had pilfered the temple in Jerusalem and they had the sanctified um, goblets and vessels out of the temple that had been sanctified and they were drinking wine and getting drunk and and out of nowhere a hand appears in the room and writes with its finger many many tickle you farson and It petrified people. I'm going to tell you something. When God really shows up, saint or sinner, when he really manifests himself, he will scare everybody. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's because you don't know what I'm talking about. He will scare everybody. And so they said, we need to understand what that means. Belshazzar, none of his wise men could. But then there was other wise men, Daniel, who was one of the eunuchs, I believe. And they brought Daniel in and Daniel Daniel said to the king, the king said, if you can tell me what this means, I will will make you fourth in command in my kingdom. And Daniel says, I I can tell you, but you're certainly not going to like it. He said, what is it? He says, many, many, tekel, you farsin means you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your father lost his kingdom through arrogance and it was restored to him. Daniel later said, you never learned from that. You're going to lose this kingdom. And that night he was murdered. That king was murdered that night. So that was another time the hand of God wrote something pretty, pretty, pretty frightening. But see, when the hand of God wrote something on behalf of this woman, it was to defend and protect a child of his that he knew had wandered off, but could come back, could, uh, could reevaluate who she really was, not who Pharisees said, not who Lawyers, not who doctrine, not who Sadducees told her she was, but who God himself, not who this orphan thing told her she was. Not you're an orphan. You need to go act like the rest of the world. You need to find all these other things the way everybody else does. And look at what happens. Everybody's disappointed that does that. You you know who the most favorite, listen, this is good. Do you know who the most favored person in the state of South Carolina is today? It's the person who has that lotto ticket worth $500 million and does not know they have it. Because if they turned that thing in, their life would have been in a commode within two years. Because they don't know when you've got that orphan thing, when you've got that thing on you, money doesn't fix it. Popularity doesn't fix it. Hollywood doesn't fix it. It breaks it. It kills it. It steps on it. It uses it and wipes you out of the way. Until Jesus shows you who you are. Verse 9, it says, Upon, um, hearing what Jesus said, her accusers slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest with a convicted conscience. You know, the best thing you can have is not condemnation about your behavior. It's conviction. If, if, if I know everybody in this room has done stuff you wish you'd never done or some stuff you were glad you did until later. Or some stuff you may be doing now don't know how to get out of. Conviction gives you a way out. Condemnation just beats you up more, makes you feel worse about yourself. That's not God. That's not God. What, it, it doesn't help to feel bad about what an idiot or, or, or you know, that doesn't help. Convicted conscience, they turned and left. Verse 10, we find that, um, oh, this is so good. This is when the Lord began to speak to me some things I hadn't really seen before. Until finally Jesus was left alone. Say that two words, left alone. Finally, Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? See, I used to think Jesus asked the same question twice, but he didn't. He was asking two different questions. Dear woman, where are your accusers? Second question, is there no one here to condemn you? See, the first question was about those people. The second question was about Jesus himself. Is there no one here to condemn you? Because being condemned, I mean, you can get condemned. I don't, you know, the wages of sin is death, poor wages. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I, I saw this too. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there in front of him. The New King James, it says, Jesus saw no one but the woman. Jesus only had eyes for her. Say that with me. Jesus only had eyes. Years ago, on the night I woke up and I heard the Lord singing this song. Old R&B from the flamingos. Nobody who knows who the flamingo. I know this third row crowd. They know who the flamingos are. Any, <laughs> you had to be born around like 1950 to know who the flamingos. I wish I could sing this. Maybe I'll try. (laughs) My love must be a kind of blind love. I can't see anyone but you. Are the stars out tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. I only have eyes for you, dear. The moon may be high, but I can't see a thing in the sky. I only have eyes for you. So I heard that in the night. That's the only place you change is when you stand alone. God doesn't care what your friends think, what your mama thinks, what your daddy thinks, what your cousins think, what your boss thinks, what your preacher thinks, what the apostle of the universe thinks. When it comes to how you determine who you are and how you should live, there's one place to find that. It's alone with Jesus Who only has eyes for you. Says she was standing there. Everybody needs to know what is. Elijah. Elijah. Elijah the great prophet. Over in 1 Kings. He comes out of nowhere. Nowhere. And out of nowhere. He comes and confronts. Ahab and Jezebel. The most evil king and Queen in the entire history of Israel. And he walks up to them and he says, Before the Lord God whom I stand. I'm not standing in front of you. I don't regard your place. It shall not rain nor shall they be due for three and a half years except according to my word. And then he took off. How do you get that kind of boldness and confidence to not care about evil people that could easily kill you? You don't stand before them. They don't count. They don't amount. That's not where you find your security. There's one place to find your security. It's in God's heart for you. You need to know what your standing is. Where do we stand with you, Lord? That's the question. Thinking about this dear lady, before her accusers, she was ashamed, she was feared for her life, she was humiliated, but before Jesus, when she knew how he felt about her at her worst, still standing there in front of him, and he asked those two questions, where are your accusers? Is there anyone else here? To condemn you, Jesus said. And she said, I see no one, Lord God. And so Jesus said, go and from now on be free from a life of sin. Jesus didn't see himself as one of her accusers. She saw Jesus as the God who did not condemn her. He didn't let her skate either. Do you understand that? He didn't say it was okay. But what he said to her was You need you need to know who you are. This is not who you are, sweetie. This is not who you are. This is not you. You don't truly know who you are until you know who Jesus is and that he's God and that you know in your heart how he really feels about you. He doesn't overlook our sin. Actually, it says he came and died for it. But neither does Jesus use accusation and fear to deliver us from it because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The Bible tells us about Jesus. That he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It didn't even say seek and to save those who lost themselves. Guess who lost us? God lost us. I mean, we'd be responsible for our behavior, but God sees it as himself having lost you. So he's here to seek you, to save you. I was thinking about grace. Everybody loves grace. To have grace. But grace is really only effective in the lives of those people who understand they don't deserve it. Grace doesn't work if you think you've got it coming. If if it's not an undeserved blessing. Here's the amazing thing. The woman who was embarrassed and humiliated and frightened. found salvation when the man who hid and wouldn't expose who he was walked away lost and blind and God only knows what. We can say, gee, that wasn't fair for the woman to be exposed and the man to be hidden. I'm going to tell you something. When, when, when you can be exposed... The right way that's where freedom comes it's all that ducking and running and hiding and posturing and but when you've received grace it only works if you think yeah man i deserve that this is a long time coming it's about time this showed up about time i was treated this way about time i got that promotion about time my life turned around No, no, one of the purest manifestations of a person who knows they've been touched by the grace of God is thanksgiving. You're thankful. You're thankful. I really like this. The woman whose shame was exposed and threatened with death found the ultimate solution in the person of God himself. The man who participated in the act was equally guilty who did not expose his need, didn't find redemption. So where does that leave us? The Bible, I'm not... I've actually seen this before, and it's quite frightening. I've seen people in public settings stand up and confess horrible sins. But let me say this, I've never seen that end well. I'm very serious. And so I'm not suggesting you do that today. I'm really not. I don't want that. I don't think it would be helpful to you. But here is what the Bible says. It says, confess your faults one to another that you might be healed. There might be many of you who have these things and you need to be healed. But well, you need to find a trusted believer in Jesus that you can open up your heart to. I haven't communicated this very well. We're going to talk more about it after the first of the year. But we have like a threefold vision for the church is to build a strong community, is to excel in worship. And it's to minister in power. Those are the three areas. Everything would generally come under one of, those, one of those three areas. But to build a strong community, you've got to open up your heart. We have home groups. We have opportunities for people to meet. We're going to crank them up here again in another, what, When March maybe? You won't stay here if you don't meet somebody that cares about you that you care about. And if you don't do that, your life, your life won't, won't probably won't change because it's so important to open your heart. That's my sign right there. That crying child tells me it's time to go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, do we have uh, ministry teams today? I'm not sure with it being the weekend, do we? We do, the Schroeders? Okay. If you'd like prayer, if you'll come over here, the Schroeders and some of their other ministry partners will be glad to pray for you. Why don't we stand up together and and let's commit our lives. How many of you want to commit your life to Jesus all over again? Raise your hand and wave at me if you want to commit your life to Jesus all over again. I'm in that category. Father, we commit our life to you all over again. Be merciful to us, Lord. We know you are. Touch our lives. Lord, bring corporate and private and public And individual breakthrough. Bring comfort to our hearts. Holy Spirit, uh, find a home in this place beyond what you found already. We ask for your release of power and joy and liberation and righteous, holy, loving countenance on every soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.